Well, turn back in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. So we continue our verse-by-verse study of this wonderful little epistle of Paul to the church at Philippi, an epistle about joy in the progress of the gospel. Evangelism, I know it can be a frightening word to many of us, but I want to talk about it this morning. I want to talk about how our lives can contribute or take away from uh, the task of evangelism. And what I really want us to think about this morning is the sense of this. We have a corporate witness. Not only do you have an individual witness in your workplace, in your family, in your neighborhood, and uh, wherever it is you go, but we also, when we, when we gather, and even when we're not gathered, we have a corporate witness. And it's very important that we're mindful of that because this is one of the ways that we can either open doors for the gospel or we can uh, be a hindrance for the gospel. And so we want to talk about that this morning from Philippians 2, verses 14 to 18. You see, our evangelism is much more than our words. Now, it's never less than our words. You can't evangelize without words, but it is far more than just our words. You will not ever find a Nike representative wearing Adidas. A Mary Kay associate will not peddle Avon on the weekend. We can't live in such a way that undermines the very thing that we want to represent to others. We must have a supporting life. We must have a, 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 a witness of integrity that stands behind our message. It's both. Evangelism is always both. We can't undo with our words, with our actions, what our words are saying. We must earn a hearing if we are to gain a hearing. And we must live in such a way that we seek to open doors for the word of life. uh, The word of the gospel that we then hold out and hold forth to others. It is a very big part of our witness then to open doors and overcome obstacles. And I think especially in our culture, especially in this day and age. uh, We we live in the the south, in in the Bible Belt, in a jaded culture to the things of the gospel often. Uh, So many people have been burned over by the gospel, it seems, and inoculated by the gospel and burned over by churches. And it seems at times that uh, there are more obstacles in our post-Christian America than maybe in a foreign mission field where the slate might be clean. We've had so many people who have tried Jesus and it didn't work for them. And uh, so many preconceptions and hindrances of hypocrisy and uh, poor preaching and poor Christian living that that you and I must overcome with our individual and our corporate witness. And so we want to talk about how we can do that today. And it comes to us from this passage in a context of conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, 127, also in a context of working out your salvation with fear and trembling, 212, comes this passage of 2, 14 to 18. It's going to teach us how to overcome obstacles for the sake of Christ and the sake of the gospel. And it's in two areas, really, that we may not often think about as crucial to evangelism. Uh, Two areas that we might not give a second thought unless God had put it in His Word and in the place that He put it. The answer to how we do this comes in the form of two commands that book in this passage. 
There is a command in verse 14 at the very beginning. There is a command in verse 18 at the very end. And those two commands tell us how to do this. They form our outline, in fact. We're going to look this morning at the role of humble contentment in evangelism. That's verses 14 to 16. And then the role of unquenchable joy in evangelism. That's verses 17 and 18. So we begin then with the role of humble contentment. Let me read these verses again. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast, really holding forth the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, Paul says, in the day of Christ, in the rapture of the church, in the, in the summing up of all things in Christ, I will have reason to glory or boast because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. So there's much at stake here in Paul's mind as he gives these charges to the Philippian believers. He doesn't want to have run his race for nothing. He didn't want to work like a farmer for nothing. And so he is calling them to a certain kind of lifestyle and attitude behind that lifestyle. Now, every commentator is in agreement that Paul has in mind here as a backdrop to this charge of not grumbling and disputing. He has in mind the children of Israel in the wilderness wanderings. In fact, part of this passage is a direct quote from the Septuagint of Deuteronomy 32. We'll get to that a little later. But it's very clear when Paul speaks here of grumbling, he's thinking of the Israelites grumbling. That takes us back to their story, and it's really an ongoing illustration of the sermon this morning, at least the first part. The Israelites had come through the Red Sea crossing. They had been delivered out of Egypt by the hand of God. He had, he had uh, accomplished those plagues upon Egypt. He had judged all of those gods of Egypt, and now they had the Passover, uh, the, the climax, the death of the firstborn, and then the passing through the Red Sea, escaping the armies of Egypt, and they're drowned in the Red Sea. And now, here it is, only three days removed. And they begin the wilderness wanderings, and there is no water. No water. And then all of a sudden, somebody says, hey, there's water. And you can just see them rushing to it, and they begin to drink it, and they go, blah, yuck, it's bitter water. And so they named the place Bitter The text tells us, so the people grumbled at Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Fast forward six weeks, post their deliverance day, the sons of Israel grumble again. It says in the text, they say to Moses and Aaron, would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, you know, we're longing for the good old days of slavery back in Egypt. And they say to Moses, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Grumbling, disputing. Let me ask you, who were they really grumbling against? Whose provision were they really chafing against? Whose graciousness and generosity were they really saying God this is not good enough for us they were grumbling against God Moses would say to these grumblers for the Lord hears your grumblings which you grumble against him 
And what are we? What are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. You see, in the, in the context of the children of Israel, their grumblings were hardly ever separated from really grumbling against God's appointed leadership over them. They were grumbling against human authority figures and therefore grumbling against the ultimate authority who had placed that authority in their lives. And they often would come and fall at the feet of Moses and, and Aaron. The reality is fear, not faith, will lead to grumbling, not gratitude. Fear, not faith, leads to grumbling, not gratitude. Actually, it's worse than that as, as we think about the children of Israel. Their grumbling came from hearts of unbelief. Psalm 106 is a historical psalm of the history of Israel. It says this, They did not believe in His word, but grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. Fast forward. Paul now writes to a New Testament church that's known for its dissension and its resisting Paul's apostolic authority. I speak of the church of Corinth. Paul writes this to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and he's going to use Israel in the wilderness wanderings as an example to this church that is plagued with dissension and has the seeds of rebellion planted in it. 1 Corinthians 10 says, With most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happen as examples to us. He goes on, he says, Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So Paul comes to the Philippian church then, to these believers in Christ who have been set free from such sins as grumbling and disputing. And he says to them, do all things without this. You see, since the fall of man, grumbling and disputing has been an epidemic among human beings. It is epidemic today in our workplaces because there are authority figures in workplaces. And wherever you will find an authority figure, you will find grumbling and disputing. There are people being shot to death in our workplaces over such disputes and arguments and complaints. Grumbling and disputing is epidemic in our classrooms, among students. Students with teachers, teachers with each other, teachers with administration. And so we have had had classrooms that have been shot up. The disputes have reached, reached such an epidemic proportion. There's grumbling and disputing in our families. Husbands with wives and wives with husbands and children with parents and parents with children. And families are dysfunctional and torn apart by these two sins. And we would hope and we could live in a Pollyanna world and say, yeah, but it doesn't ever make its way into the church. But we would be naive and we would be blind and we would be wrong. Because we make our way into the church because the church is made up of us. We always have this potential and so the church of Philippi and so the church here in Kerrville. The word grumbling here is an interesting word. It's one of those words that's an onomatopoeia word. It sounds like what it means. 
It means to murmur. It's to speak lowly, to whisper, to complain. Just to grumble and growl under your breath. That's what this word means. The word disputing means then the dissension and the bickering and the backbiting that comes with the grumbling. They usually and often go together. They're, they're evil twins. They make their way into hearts that are not walking in humble contentment. Really the opposite of grumbling and disputing is humble contentment and submission to God-given authority. Where those things are waning, these things will be growing. Now, Philippi wasn't Corinth, thankfully, but the potential was still there to become a Corinth, right? You see, we're not talking about a difference in kind, just a difference in degree between the church at Philippi and the church at Corinth. In fact, uh, Expositor's Commentary says of this passage in Philippians, it says, in Philippi there were, quote, grumbling discontents among the congregation and evil disputes that followed. I'm thankful we're not Corinth, I don't think, although the potential is always there. Philippi was a good church, it was a great church, it was a faithful church, so is Kerrville Bible Church, but we're not a perfect church. And so there's always the potential for these sins to arise in our midst. We need to be aware that grumbling and disputing in a church body is a huge discouragement to church leadership. It kills teamwork in committees and on groups and wherever it might be found. It actually divides churches and it ruins our witness. And because Paul is addressing this to a church at large, so it is addressed to us because we have a corporate witness. And we want to live in a winsome sort of way that makes Christianity and following Christ in a corporate body of believers look attractive, right? We want, this to, we want people to long for what we have as a family of God. And so when these things begin to work their way in, then this corporate witness is going to be hindered and ruined, in fact, if it's not checked. This will and has and will continue to divide churches and send people off to the next place and then the next place and then the next place. I mean, think about this. Who wants to invite somebody to any kind of group where all that happens is grumbling and disputing? Hey, come to our church. We argue over everything. (laughs) It's great. You leave stressed out, agitated, and exhausted. (laughs) Look what the text says. Do, and this is in the emphatic here, do all things without grumbling or disputing. All things means all things. All classes, all meetings, all assignments, all work projects, all committees, all boards, elders, deacons, mission board, everyone, all things without grumbling or disputing. Come into the foyer without grumbling or disputing. Come into the worship center, come into the luncheons, come to the work day. Paul allows none of this to take place in any way that would be sinful, that would be harmful. Do all things, he says. Wash dishes and go to work and change diapers and take care of your kids. Order at the restaurant, wait on the order at the restaurant. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. 
Now, why? Why is this so important that we live this way? I mean, this is a high standard. This is so difficult because everything in our attitudes and our fallenness and our flesh wants to, wants to murmur, right? Wants to find something wrong with everything and wants to argue about everything. That's just kind of what's happening in our flesh. And so this is a very difficult call here. Why is it so important? Verse 15. Verse 15, so that you, plural, will prove yourselves to be blameless. That's not open to any outside charges and innocent. That speaks of our inward childlike sincerity, lack of hypocrisy. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless on the outside, innocent on the inside. Actually, you will demonstrate that you are children of God, not children of the world, not children of Satan, who only wants to grumble and dispute. But you want to prove yourselves and demonstrate yourselves children of God above reproach, right smack dab in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation. I don't have to spend any time backing and and defending that, do I? That we're in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation, seemingly more so than in the history of the world. We don't even understand what marriage means anymore in our generation. And there's abortion, and there's euthanasia, and and there's the... All of the sins of all the generations in between. We are living as much as the Philippians were living in the middle, right in the middle of a scolios, scolios generation. Where we get our word scoliosis. Morally perverted. Curved. Crooked. Not straight. Not right. These two words almost mean the same thing. Paul is strengthening the argument. The word perverse, the second word here, means corrupt. Again, twisted, out of line with the law of God. Paul says we can't be grumblers and disputers because look where we're living and look who's watching us. And we want to prove ourselves to be children of God, offspring of our heavenly Father, Among whom, he says, we're in this generation, among whom you appear, you shine as stars in the world. You light up this world, believer. You are luminaries in a very dark place. How are we to be luminaries? By holding forth, holding toward, holding out the word that gives life, the word of life, the word about life. So Paul hadn't wasted his life in ministry. You see, beloved, the background is the children of Israel, and most of the children of Israel did not prove themselves to be children of God. They proved themselves to be just children of the flesh. That's why Deuteronomy 32.5 says this, They have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect. Now, this is Deuteronomy 32.5 talking about the children of Israel. And it says, they are a perverse and crooked generation. Whoa. So Paul here takes a statement that was about the children of Israel, the lost ones, and he uses it to describe the world that the Philippian believers were living in. See, this may have been true of the fleshly children of Israel, but church at Philippi, it's not true of you. You appear as lights. You are children of God in the midst of this unscrupulous, morally twisted culture. Listen, Curveville Bible Church, you are God's shining lights in a dark place. You are His luminaries shining against a black night sky. 
you and I, we are designed to dispel the darkness and to light the way for others. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, we are the light of the world. We can't hide it under a bushel. You and I, we exist to hold out the gospel. We live here, we're, we're placed here for that very purpose, and we are to do so without grumbling or disputing. Because these sins, as much as any sins, will mar the family resemblance. We will disfigure our resemblance of our Heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. To say it another way, the more we murmur and argue, the more we blend into the night sky. Now, these two sins here are contagious sins, highly contagious. It was the ten spies who went into the land. They came back and gave a bad report. They grumbled. They weren't walking by faith. They were walking by fear. They actually had unbelief in their hearts. They gave a bad report, and it swayed the entire nation. It swayed everyone else. It was contagious. These sins are also habit-forming. We went through all of the illustrations in the history of the children of Israel. There's at least six in the wilderness wanderings. The spies, Korah's rebellion, Miriam's rebellion against Moses. Not only are they contagious and habit-forming, but they are deadly. Those ten spies, they fell by plague. Korah's family, all of his possessions, all of his offspring, all of his relatives, they were swallowed up by the earth. That didn't stop the grumbling and complaining, and so God sends another plague and takes out 14,000 children of Israel. That wasn't enough to do it either. He then said, for every day that these spies went into the promised land, 40 days, I'm going to send this generation around in the circles in the wilderness for 40 years until they all die off. Everyone 20 and up dies off because of their grumbling and disputing. Deadly sins, contagious sins, habit-forming sins, and also sins really of pride and unbelief. Sins of discontentment. Sins of what God has provided for me is not good enough for me. I deserve better. They just grow out of a fertile soil of pride and even unbelief. So to say to us, church, do all things without grumbling or disputing is to say, walk in humble contentment. Even to walk in submission to authority. And if we do this, who are we going to be like? Who did we just learn about in this very chapter? We will be just like Jesus. Just like Jesus who lived his entire life under submission to his heavenly father, never grumbling or disputing. Just like Jesus who was obedient even to the point of death. No matter what it took, we want to be like him then we should do all things without sinful murmuring and backbiting bickering. If we want to be like him, then we too are going to be smack in the middle of a critical, discontent, watching world. And that's the key here. The world knows nothing of this, right? The world is by nature discontent and is by nature bickering. And so God places these little luminaries all around the world to say, this is how you are to show them what they don't have. This is how you're to show them Jesus. This is what the watching world needs to see in us. They need to see two things. Number one, has the gospel made us content? And number two, has the gospel made us humble? 
If we run around and find something wrong with everything, and if we can't get along with anyone, what sort of advertisement is that for the gospel, right? What kind of representative is that? So, beloved, here is how we are to stand out as God's children and shine in darkness. She stands 151 feet tall. From the base to the tip of her torch, it's 305 feet and one inch. And she stands in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation, otherwise known as the New York Harbor, New York City. She is a robed female figure representing Libertas, the Roman goddess of freedom. Now, that might be for another illustration for another sermon that she's a goddess and she's our Statue of Liberty, but that's not how I'm using it in this illustration. In her right hand is a torch. In her left hand is a tablet evoking the law. On that tablet is inscribed July 4th, 1776. At her feet lie broken chains. I speak of the Statue of Liberty, and the Statue of Liberty is a wonderful illustration to us of this passage, of holding forth the word of life. We stand at the crossroads of history and humanity. We stand with a torch in our hand. The torch is the gospel light. We hold a law in our hands, the law of God, that all men have violated. And what comes out of the Statue of Liberty's mouth there up in New York Harbor? Nothing. There is no grumbling or disputing from her mouth. She is just a steady, steadfast witness. Broken chains lie at our feet. Our chains that once bound us in sin are broken. And we stand as a sentinel, as a lighthouse, as a signpost to freedom in Christ. Freedom through the gospel. What a wonderful illustration that is to us. We are to stand and say to those who are citizens of this world, come and immigrate. Come through the channel of Ellis Island called Gospel and find your citizenship in heaven. Come and find peace with God. Be able to live a life without grumbling or disputing or, to say it another way, a life of humble contentment. Well, that's not the only thing Paul sets before us here. There's one more thing. Not only do we need to embrace the role of humble contentment, but secondly, the role of unquenchable joy. The role of unquenchable joy. This is really what's going on in verses 17 and 18. Uh, This letter is about joy 16 times the word is found. Four of them are in our passage. 25% of the uses are in these two verses right before us now. Paul is setting before us that if we're going to have a door-opening, gospel-penetrating kind of lifestyle, we need unquenchable joy unshakable joy. Let me show you how he does this. Verse 17, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice, I think he has in mind vertical there, and I rejoice with you all. I share my joy with you all, horizontal. Command, you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way, in the same way, and share your joy with me. Now, we know that they dearly love Paul. We know that Paul was extremely fond of these Christians. Paul is in prison when he writes this letter. 
they are concerned about his welfare. We've talked about that. Their concern, just like our concerns of daily life, can easily go from legitimate concern to what? Worry and anxiety. They can, they can transition into sin very easily. And so these Philippians believers were tempted, as Paul is in prison, to fear. But if he dies, and it's possible, he doesn't think that's going to happen, but he, he said it's possible if they execute him, then they're going to be tempted to despair. They're going to be tempted to fall apart. Paul says to them in these two verses, If I die, the last thing you should do is fall apart. What you actually should do is rejoice. That's what he's saying. He is saying, perish the thought. This is a preemptive strike. Just in case this court case doesn't go the way he's thinking it might go. Paul wants to prepare them. He wants to set before them how they should truly react, how they really should react to his homecoming. Paul says to them here, if I die here in this prison, don't let that knock you off the gospel track that you're on. Instead, he says, if they take my life, you need to interpret it this way. My life is a libation of joy poured out on the sacrifice and service of your faith. What a picture this is of the Old Testament offering, the sacrifice, that they would come and then pour a libation or a drink offering to complete that sacrifice. Paul is saying, what I would be doing if I was to lose my life for Christ would be pouring out my life on the sacrificial service of your faith, Philippians. I would be serving you and and serving the progress of the gospel in your faith. What a wonderful way to look at death for a believer. In other words, beloved, Paul is saying this is worst case scenario. Right? I mean, here's the apostle locked away. If he dies, what happens to the gospel? They love him dearly. They'll never see him again. In the eyes of the Philippians, this is worst case scenario. And Paul is telling them here, this is no time for the wringing of hands. This is no time for the pacing of floors. This is no time for the fretting of souls. Instead, rejoice in the Lord because to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's already told them what's going to happen to him if he dies. It is very much better to go and be with Jesus. And so he rejoices if they take his head off. His battle is won. His race is over. Paul would be thrilled with that outcome. It is very much better. And he goes on. He says, if this happens to me, don't lament. Don't fall apart. Don't mourn as people without hope. Hey, if Rome kills me, don't grumble against God's agents. God is sovereign. God's just calling me home. Don't grumble against God either, he's telling them. Don't crater in your convictions. Don't go dark on the gospel. Don't fall off the grid. Instead, fight back with joy. Fight back with unquenchable joy in Jesus Christ. I rejoice, share my joy with you all. You rejoice, share your joy with me. That second phrase of that literally could be congratulate me. Just congratulate me like I just graduated top of my class or something. So he takes worst case scenario, fight with joy, outcome rejoicing. I want you to notice something Paul does here. This is so important. Paul is from prison modeling Christ from the cross. Christ who endured the cross for the joy set before him. See, Philippians 2, 5 to 11 is still in Paul's mind. 
And so as he talks about this, he is going to, by example, do what he commands them to do. It was Christ from the cross who said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing, right? Did he grumble? Did he bicker? No, he said, Father, forgive them. It was Christ from the cross who said, it is finished, victory cry. It is Christ from the cross, victory cry. Isn't that what Paul sounds like he's doing here? It is Christ from the cross who says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is Paul's way of saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. No time for mourning without hope. See, beloved, we need an unquenchable joy that draws others to Jesus. We need an unshakable joy even if, and you fill in the blank. And that how it began in verse 17? But even if. If we will have this, we can then stand back and God using our life and God using our words, we can watch the citizens of darkness be drawn to the light of liberty. And we can watch the immigrants in a mass migration into the kingdom and the citizenship of heaven. May the Lord uh, help this church and help you and help me to do all things without grumbling or disputing and to rejoice even if.